Hello, everyone, and welcome to our show, Let's Talk Mental Health, where we discuss all aspects of mental health and wellness and how it impacts your physical health. We'll share stories and speak with behavioral health experts to normalize conversations around mental health and the need for occasional support. Our goal is to reduce stigma and provide our listeners with the tools and resources they need to lead physically and mentally healthy lives. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here today we're speaking with Anna Wynn, the licensed marriage and family therapist and the manager of the Behavioral Health and Ambulatory Behavioral Health Program for Providence St. Joseph Mission Heritage Medical Group in California. Today we're tackling the topic of emotional eating and eating disorders. So welcome back to the show, Anna, one of my favorite guests. How are you today? I am doing so fabulous. Thank you for having me here. I, I always love being here, so it's always a special pleasure for me. We love having you. Trust me, you're like one of my faves. Um, well, I always forget to ask this question because I know you so well, but tell our listeners who don't know you a little bit about yourself and your role at Providence. So I am a, our behavioral health program manager. I actually, I've been supporting our site at Mission Heritage in California. And so I've been transitioning to behavioral health manager. And so what we do is we uh, really practice behavioral health and internal medicine and primary care, we want to make sure that these services are more accessible. So a big part of it too is, you know, we work with a, a primary care physicians to make sure that services can be implemented sooner than later instead of waiting for someone two months in the community. We're trying to get services in a lot uh, sooner and really work on some of these issues and then really make sure that we provide skills and tools as, as best as possible. Oh, that's amazing. And you guys do so much great work. And we have, I mean, that's why I say we could literally have you on the show every day. But today we're going to talk about emotional eating, which is um, a passion play of mine. And I also should apologize to everybody. I have a cold, so I'm very sorry if my voice is a little cracky. But um, I'm super connected to emotional eating because um, I am self-diagnosed, not not officially diagnosed as a binge eater. Um, so I kind of find myself wondering sometimes, like, how common is that? Not just binge eating, but emotional eating issues and, and disorders in, in general. How common are they? Emotional eating is it's so incredibly common and it's one of the things where almost everyone does it or they have done it because at an early age, you know, we I like to give this example because whenever we used to cry, you know, our parents sometimes or even teachers if those around us would be, you know, here have a cookie or have a candy or or have something to soothe us. And then so it's usually not a problem when we do it once or twice, but when it starts to become a pattern growing up, we start to make this association that food helps us feel better. And so that leads to the emotional eating aspect of it. It's completely uh, not harmful until it becomes a reoccurring pattern that starts to impact our health. And that's what we want to really keep an eye on. Well, when you just said that, <clears throat> that's it's very true. Like I, when I grew up, we were kind of, um, I don't want to say it's emotional eating. It's like, um, eating for emotions though, right? Like we had comfort foods when we were sad. We had congratulatory, like, Hey, you got an A on your spelling test. Let's go get an ice cream. Right? Like we had kind of this, everything was love and emotion by food. Um, and I'm native American. Um, and my next door neighbors were Hispanic. And I noticed that we kind of had similarities in that they're um, like, their family, everything in love was by food, right? Like they told you they loved you by food. And I remember being in uh, my neighbor's house one time and they offered me something and I said, no. And it was like, I had just kicked grandma in the teeth, right? Like, how dare you turn down? And I was, I was on a diet. Now bear in mind, this is, this is a lot, right? I was like a teenager on a diet, which to tell you I have body issues. But anyway, I remember learning at that time that sometimes you can't really say no to food because of like a cultural thing. So talk to me a little bit about how culture plays into eating um, emotionally. Oh, it's so true. You know, each culture 
is so different, but there are some similarities. I, I can even tell you, even in the Asian American community, right? So food is how you share with someone that you love them. Um, the idea of saying, I love you is really uncommon, but it's all shown through action, right? It's all shown through every time someone makes a meal for you. And it's all shown through every time someone does an action behavior for you. And a lot of times it is through food. Um, it usually isn't bad. It's, it's really the idea that, yes, food has become our comfort, but when it becomes our one and only comfort, that gets to be a little concerning. But if it's one of many comforts, just like the way I talk about skills and tools, if we have one skill that we always go to, for instance, with eating disorders, it's really common to have over-exercising as a coping skill. But it's usually, exercise is usually, for the most part, really healthy, helps you feel good, it's normal. But if it's your one and only skill, just like if food is your one and only comfort, that gets to be a little more concerning. So one of the things um, as we talk about in eating disorder treatment is it's going to be introducing you to a wide variety of coping skills so that food, yes, will always be there on some level, but it doesn't have to be your one and only. Because like you said, in different cultures, it's rude to turn away food. And we don't necessarily want to do that. And in eating disorders, it's really interesting because for an alcoholic or someone who struggles with alcoholism, we avoid bars, we avoid alcohol, we avoid the substance itself, but food, we have to start making peace with it. And that's the hardest part. Well, it's funny you say that about like avoiding bars because I'm currently in my, you know, lose my COVID weight and getting back into running and everything. And I just have learned in the last like six months that food is at the core of everything. If I want to see my friends, it's at a restaurant. If I like everything revolves around food. So if you have food issues, how do you, I mean, how do you deal with it? Because food is like the, the, the crux of every relationship you have in life. A big part of it too, and, and for this type of treatment, it's really helpful to have a multidisciplinary team because you're right. Food is such a, a center of not only all cultures, but in a lot of activities that we all do, you know, when we want to go out, we want to connect with someone, it's over coffee, it's over tea, it's over food, it's over brunch. It's something that we can't avoid. So the best way to do it is to make peace with it. A big part of what we want to know is usually with eating disorder treatment, we're looking at what's called intuitive eating. And so when we have a treatment team, usually it'll be a therapist, a dietitian, a psychiatrist, if there's any medications needed. Sometimes there is a nurse or primary care involved because with an eating disorder, there's so much going on on the inside that we can't see. So if we're messing with our food intake, like if we are restricting our food and we're not having regular meals, if we're overeating, you know, whatever it is that we do, a lot of times we have to get regular labs to see if if we're really healthy on the inside. And dietitians will often work on that piece with the patient to identify how can we undo a lot of these myths that we learned? And how do we get ourselves to a place where we can start to eat intuitively? And the idea of eating intuitively is if you give your body what it wants, it will get enough of it and then it will move on to the next thing. And that there's no good or bad food. It's just that different foods have different nutrients. And you want to make sure you're giving your body well-rounded amount of nutrients. The therapy side of it works through a lot of the core of what drives the emotions because food plays a, a really big part of it in helping you cope. You know, if we're restricting meals, sometimes it could be about control. It could be, you know, the less I eat, the more control I have over my body, over my food. If we're eating emotionally or if we're eating more in excess or revenging, it could be with looking for comfort. So it's really about finding the core of what drives the behavior and starting to address it head on. 
I, I know you're not a dietitian, but you just said kind of if we give our body enough of it, it moves on to the next thing. Is is that does that mean that the sugar thing is a myth, right? That if you give your body sugar, then it just craves more and more and more sugar, or is that just our brain? because like, we just want sugar or do you know that's, I would say that's that's a really good question for a dietitian I can tell you yeah, on the psychological yeah. emotional side mm. sometimes it could be the emotional attachment we have with sugar it could be you know like we talked yeah. about earlier it could be the the reward that we get whenever we did when yeah. we got an A yeah. or whenever we did something yep. well it could be you know having a really tough week at work and then having some cookies at the end of it it could be the emotional attachment that we have with it too it's, and I always ask, you know, whether it's sugar, whether it's anything else, what purpose does it serve for you? And there's almost always something there. Yeah, it's always emotional, I think. Well, <clears throat> you know, we know that you can have an eating disorder. And then the topic today is emotional eating. How do you know the difference between just emotional eating and having an actual eating disorder? And like, emotional what's the eating, line there? <laughs> it's usually connected. So usually emotional eating is really common the red flag is if we start to do it really consistently, emotional eating ties into different components of eating disorders. For instance, you know, when we have anorexia, it's usually typically when we restrict food, we're not, we're skipping meals, but a lot of times emotional eating can still play a role in terms of if you're skipping meals, what are you rewarding yourself with? And so there's the emotional part of that too. And also with binge eating, or even bulimia, where you are binging and purging. And it could be more so of you you enjoy these foods, it provides you emotional comfort. And then let's say with bulimia, you go through this purging process. And then usually you get stuck in shame after you purge, then you start to feel really bad about it. Or even after you binge, you start to feel really bad about it. The more you start to feel bad about it, the more you're likely to have another binge. So the idea with even binging or even with bulimia, is you want to start to neutralize, you want to start to look at it like behaviors and how can we start to reduce these behaviors? Because once it dips into shame, then it starts to worsen our urge to want to engage in the binging again. So it's this really, um, it's a self-perpetuating cycle that eating disorders, we always talk about how important it is to get out of. It's so interesting because, you know, I mentioned the binge thing for me. It's like I have control issues. Like if, if people ask me what's your, you know, mental health issue, it's definitely a control thing. And it's interesting because when I'm going through the binge process, I'm in control. I decide how much I eat, what I eat when I'm done eating, right? And then I have the guilt, right? Like how did you just eat 5,000 calories? But then for me, it's like, okay, I can control myself. I don't need to do this again. And then the next time it's like, well, I can tell myself what I want to eat. And if I want to eat the box of cookies, like it's this whole mental thing. And it's interesting because I, I find myself wondering, like, is it both? Like, do I have control issues and an eating disorder? Like who really knows? Like, I think it's important for people when they go through these things to actually seek out help and to talk to people like you, because trying to figure that out on our own. I, I mean, I, it's like going to WebMD when you have a headache and thinking that you have brain cancer, right? Like I can't diagnose myself. I cannot talk myself out of this issue. So I just want to thank you for being available to people because I think it's important, but let's just say somebody's out there listening and they think they might have an issue, but they, they haven't talked to anybody. What advice would you give them about just identifying whether they're emotional eating or they might have an eating disorder? There are a couple of key things. And I, I will say going back to your first comment earlier, Mary, everyone likes control. Uh, every single person. I've never met anyone who doesn't like control because control keeps us safe. And the thing about control and how, as, as you're talking about identifying an eating disorder, the thing about control is our brain is so primitive. Our brain doesn't necessarily care where we get the control from as long as we have it. So one of the things we want to take a look at is 
if you're going through any emotional eating, any anorexia symptoms, any bulimia or binging symptoms, take a step back and identify, is there something going on in my life? Is there something going on with control where I feel like I don't have control in one aspect of my life? And is it compensating or shifting into, onto food? That's one of the best ways to look at it because we all like control and our brain ultimately just wants control. But if it's really grabbing for it in food, a good question is, do I have control in another area of my life or am I lacking that control for me to want it so bad here? And as we're talking about getting into the red flags of identifying what's going on, you know, if we start to find yourself one restricting meals, skipping meals, and we start to kind of dip into malnourishment, that's a red flag. If you start to find yourself, of course, binging and feeling uncomfortably full and feeling like you don't have control because you, you touched on the control cycle, right? So it's almost this idea of I have control over my food, but then when we overdo it, then we feel like we don't have control. And when we don't have control, our brain starts to freak out. Then we're stuck in that cycle again. And ultimately, we just want to have control in different ways. Part of it is shifting the control. If we have control and where we really need it, we'll find ourselves needing less of it in food. If we're binging, we're having large amounts, we're feeling uncomfortably full, check in with yourself. Are you feeling like you need some comfort? Is there a comfort that we can seek elsewhere? If you are engaging in, let's say, binging and purging, a lot of it does tie back to the control, the comfort, the shame. And so a lot of times with these behaviors, we always want to look at the core of what's really driving it. And that's why it's so helpful with eating disorders. I always say you really want that multidisciplinary team because you can have a therapist, but you also need a dietitian for the food part. You also need a doctor to figure out what's going on. And a lot of times with eating disorders, it could coincide with depression, anxiety as well. So you also want a psychiatrist just in case you do have those things that could be driving those behaviors even more. Wow. You're amazing. I love you. Um, you know, you were talking about, we've talked about binge eating. We've talked about people who like excessive exercisers. There was a new one I heard, orthorexia. Yes. I have not heard that until we decided we we're going to have this conversation and I'm fascinated by it. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm very impressed because orthorexia is something that is not often talked about, but it's very much there. There's been a new trend in the past couple of years with this obsession about clean eating. That's what really orthorexia is. And it's really this idea that it becomes so much of an obsession where it really starts to interfere with your life. So anything with, with eating disorders, if you start to notice it interferes with your life and orthorexia is the same thing too, where it's this obsession with clean eating where if you, you can't really go to a restaurant because you don't know exactly where the food comes from and you have to start preparing your own meals because you have the control over knowing exactly what goes into your meal, how clean it is, the source it comes from. And usually for the most part, when we are thinking about where food comes from, it's not bad. It's just that if it's starting to prevent us, like you said, food is such the center of our connection. If it starts to interfere with the way we go and we eat with someone. If it starts to interfere with going on vacation and you have to pack your own food because you don't know where the sources are coming from, that gets a little concerning. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. That's crazy. Wow. Well, you know, not crazy, but um, are there like like certain triggers? Like it, if, and I don't know, I mean, we're not talking just about that specific disorder, but like, are there things that cause that? Like, is that a lifestyle thing? Is that because I watch TV and I see all this clean eating on there? Is it because the media is throwing at me? Like what triggers some of these conditions? 
I've seen so many various triggers and there's not just a one size that fits all. You know, it starts at different ages for for someone who's younger, of course, in your adolescent years, we're thinking more about our body development, about our body changes. We're, we're hyper aware of what everyone else's body looks like, what it looks like on social media, what it looks like in our culture, what the standards are supposed to be. And so as we get older, it could be developing into if we feel inferior, if we feel less than, it could tie into our, the way we see ourselves, our self-esteem. However, it could also be triggered by things that are really traumatic, really difficult life events. Because with really difficult life events that happen, there's that we don't have control, right? And then so a lot of times the food piece can be compensating for the control if something difficult happens. I've seen it across all ages, all genders, you know, from someone who's really young all the way to someone in their 90s. And it, that's perfectly okay because it just means that this isn't an exclusive disorder. It just means that so many people are struggling, just not everyone's talking about it. You know, a great example, men really struggle with this, but not all men seek help for it. And so it's one of those things where it impacts everyone across the board, there's no discrimination and who it really impacts. It's just that men are less likely to seek help because there's more shame. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I did a show with another doctor specifically about anorexia and the number of men who have anorexia blew my mind. I mean, it was, it was significant and I don't think we see that, you know, but then I, I asked her the same question. Like, is that because we see all these like gym pictures where everybody on Instagram looks so perfect and it's so impossible to look that way. Right. Um, do you think social media has impacted the way people, I don't know, the, the number or the depth or the awareness of eating disorders and emotional eating? I would say yes. I would say with anything, whether it's social media or even just group interactions day to day, I think there are always both sides to it. I think on social media, especially, we get two parts of it. You get the one part that's raising so much awareness and getting people to talk about it, and it's fantastic. And then you get the other part where you, you have a lot of people who could be deep in their eating disorder who are really um, proud of it. Enosaurs are really tricky because it ties so much with the way we're trying to shape our bodies. So a lot of times it's not always bothersome for the person. For, for sometimes for sometimes the, per, the person can be really proud of having a certain weight, a certain body type, even if it's unhealthy. So with enosaurs, it's really tricky because not everyone is on the same page as willing to get help as well. But social media, I think, has done a really interesting job with portraying all aspects of it. And I think it really depends on who we choose to follow and who we choose to surround ourselves with, whether we choose to surround ourselves with the people who are really speaking out and advocating for themselves and empowering mental health, or whether we're following a certain idea we're hoping to still follow and still shape ourselves into. I think we have to take responsibility, especially in the social media space, because I think we have to be careful with our words. I was thinking about this earlier today, too. Like, I get people who say things to me on social media, like, you'd be so pretty if you lost weight, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're like, oh, well, thanks, I think, right? Like, I think we have to, as a society, be careful, because I do think we're putting these horrible pressures on people, and not just youth, everybody. I mean, I'm in my 40s, and I was like, oh, I guess I could be pretty if I lost weight, right? Like, I think we have to do that. So let's talk about for a second, then what is our role as a friend, a parent, a sister, a daughter? Like if you think somebody has an eating disorder or is struggling with emotional eating, what do we do? Do we talk to them about it? Do, I mean, how do we, how do we handle that? It's always helpful to talk to our family members and our friends who we care about. You know, a big part of it too, is the, just to accept, just to say, I, I love you. I support you. 
And when you're ready, I'm here to help you get whatever you need. A good philosophy to kind of think, there are two things I'm thinking about um, that you can take away with you in terms of one, it's that our body is not an ornament, it's an instrument. So it's not that it's always 100% meant to be displayed, to be beauty. It's meant to be functioning. Our body, like our heart runs, we're breathing, our organs are functioning without us even thinking about it. So our body does so much for us. And it's important to acknowledge that. And the other thing that, you know, in eating disorder treatment, they talk about, and I, I love this quote, it's, I am, I have fat. I am not fat. Just like I have fingernails, but I am not fingernails. Oh, I like that. I'm going to use that. That's amazing. That's kind of like, I have cancer. I'm not cancer, right? Like, yeah, because it's not who you are as a person. And it's something that, you know, if you want to work on your body, it's always important to work on creating a whole healthy picture inside and out, not just focusing on just the outside and then having things go haywire on the inside. But for family and friends, it's important to have that mentality because when we approach it, we don't want to talk about the body. We want to talk about what's really going on for these behaviors to be driven. We want to talk about what's happening emotionally. And that's really, you know, in therapy, the core of what we're really addressing. So let's let's dig into that for a second. So let's just make an example. Let's just say I think my cousin or my sister or whatever has anorexia. What are the right words for me to use, right? I don't want to say, oh my God, you're so skinny. Do you have a problem? Like what would be the right words or language for me to use to approach that conversation? I would stay away from, from things that describe the body, from words, you know, sizes, skinny, large, anything that indicates any size. I would always refer back to, you know, I'm really worried. It seems like you've got some unhealthy behaviors. I'm really worried about your health. I'm really worried. You know, how are you feeling? Um, how are you feeling physically? How are you feeling emotionally? I, I would really focus on getting to know the person and asking questions about how they're doing as a whole person, because it's so easy for us to focus on weight. And it's so easy for us to focus on, oh, you're looking so skinny. But what that does is it could be really triggering those type of words. So even in eating disorder treatment, we stay away from numbers. We stay away from food talk. You know, we're not judging what anyone else is eating. We stay away from sizes. And we focus a lot on the emotions that are going on. What do you think are the biggest red flags we should look for? Like, I think we probably know our own body and mind for the most part. I mean, I'm not saying everybody knows that they're going through something, but if I am a concerned family member or friend, what are the the biggest things I should be looking for? A big part of it too is, and it's interesting because with eating disorders, there's so much want for control and that's what it's really about. But what you end up finding is with eating disorders that you start to lose control. You know, when you start to skip meals, you start to overdo it. When you start to binge, you start to overdo it. When you start to binge and purge, you start to overdo it. So when we start to do all these things in excess, because it's not just about the food, because sometimes there's other behaviors too, like over-exercising to the point where our body hurts. There is um, like laxative use where you're trying to have bowel movements to weigh less. You know, there are diet pills and who knows what, are in diet pills and where they come from. And so a lot of the times when we start to overly fixate on our body and our foods and we're completely negating and neglecting the emotional part, it just means whenever we avoid emotions, it comes back sideways. You know, whenever we deal with anything like addictions, like food addiction, alcohol, drugs, it's really common to have addiction swap behaviors too. So if you're working on eliminating alcohol and then you pick up food, it just means that the 
pattern of the behavior has swapped to something else. And so we want to look at patterns of our behavior. We want to look at how much control do we feel like we really have. We want to look at our health too, because in an eating disorder, as you go to the doctor, you get labs done, your health will really become apparent to what's going on on the inside as well. That's that's really a valid point. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how to ask this question the right way. Like, I know that if you say you get diagnosed for uh, an eating disorder, right, and then you go through whatever form of treatment you need to go through, can you ever officially be cured? I ask this because I have friends who were anorexic in high school, and then they were quote unquote cured, and now they're in their late forties, and it's it's resurfaced, right? Like, how do you get through that, or how do you acknowledge that? The idea of it being cured, um, you know, that's really tough because it doesn't necessarily get cured, but you can manage it really well. You can know your triggers in and out. You can know, you know, what a whole meal looks like. You can start to prepare yourself for that. You can know what's going on emotionally. You can start to manage it really well. It's very similar to, I'll use alcoholism, for example, is there will always be that hesitancy and there will always be that curiosity again and that remembering of what it was like to engage in it because with anything that involves addiction there's this instant gratification that's the hardest part to alleviate and it's the hardest part to when we work on behavioral modification to change some of those things because it's the instant gratification that's the most rewarding so on some level you will always almost feel it but it gets to a place where you can manage it so well you may not always feel the intensity of it. It could just be that you you live your day-to-day, you go have meals with your friends and family, you know what your triggers are, you know what you're on the lookout for, and then you manage it to the best of your ability and you can do that long-term. Do you find um, that when you have an eating disorder as a teenager, it's harder to manage than as an adult or does it really matter on the person? Because I'm thinking that when you're a teenager, sometimes like you're still, your brain is still developing, right? You're still learning control of your emotions. I like to think as an adult, I have decent control of my emotions. That's probably up for debate, but does age matter in your ability to conquer or, or succeed in your, your treatment? So the, I would say not necessarily age, but the sooner you catch it, the sooner, the better. So whether you catch it when you're 16, whether you catch it when you're in your 20s, your 40s, your 50s, your 80s, your 90s, the sooner you catch it and the sooner you're willing to get help, the better. So it doesn't necessarily matter how old you are, but the sooner you intervene, the sooner you can prevent these behaviors from continuing because over time, these behaviors get stronger. And the more we reinforce it, the harder it is to extinguish. It doesn't mean it's not impossible. It's very 100% possible. It just means that it's harder. That's all. So the sooner you catch it, the sooner you intervene, the, the better the prognosis will be. Awesome. Well, for those people who are listening, who maybe are going through this or have gone through this or think they've gone through it, like we've talked about some of the triggers, right? Like it could be emotion, it could be stress. What do you think are like the biggest things we should, we should watch out for the biggest pitfalls we should consider when it comes to eating disorders or emotional eating in general? I would say, you know, be on the lookout of one, where your control is. And remember, it's normal to have control and it's normal to want control. We just want to be able to spread it in different areas of our lives. And if we feel like, I always say, you know, if you have the one and only skill, the one and only coping, and it is eating, it is exercise, it is just, it's alcohol, it's just your one and only thing, and you hang on to that, my worry is what happens if you hurt your body and you can't exercise? You know, what happens if you don't have access to it anymore? Then you're going to start to feel really uncomfortable. So when we start to notice we have our one and only, and it's the most gratifying, but it's not really sustainable long-term, 
we want to really take a look at, is this something we want to continue? It's funny you say that because, you know, they always tell you like for a, a balanced lifestyle, you need to have exercise and good eating and all this. And my whole thing has always been I can eat like crap, but I work out or I run, right? Like if I burn five, you know, 500 calories, I can eat 500 calories until you can't run because I had like a knee injury. And then I was like, uh oh, <laughs> now I actually have to control my eating. That's <laughs> very true. It's very true. Yeah, so we're all, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say part of the, the treatment is really like exactly, it's such a great example that you brought up because part of the treatment is making sure that you have so many skills and tools that you don't need just just the, the unhealthy eating and then the overexercise because in case one of it's taken away, then a lot of times we start to freak out. So a lot of times we want to give ourselves as many options as possible. And then it's such a great way of approaching it. Yeah. Well, I know I've been asking all the questions, so I want to give you a chance. Is there any information I haven't talked about or any questions you think that I should have asked that the listeners would be, you know, find really helpful? You know, one of the things, eating disorder treatment, there are so many different levels of care. You know, you have inpatient, you have partial hospitalization, you have intensive outpatient, you have um, like individual therapy, one-on-one. I would say talk to your doctor or talk to a therapist. Um, you want to be able to make sure if you do get treatment, you have this wide variety of a team that's looking out for you all around. It's not just one facet of it, it's multiple. So if you do seek treatment, make sure that you have your team, make sure that you have people who are looking at you inside and out to make sure everything's okay. And there's so many options that, you know, talk to your doctor and get to know these options. If, Start with whatever you're comfortable with and your doctor will tell you where you're at and what you need. And then, you know, really take an idea. It gives you an idea of what you want to do with that going forward. What's um, what's the best place to go or what should I be looking for if I want information or I, or I want to get help? I would say and your doctor is a great place to start. Um, you can there's this website called edreferrals.com and that's a great place to look. And you want to look for eating disorder treatments, therapies that will align with intuitive eating. Well, thank you, Anna, for joining us today on Let's Talk Mental Health. We look forward to continuing this important conversation on mental health and wellness with more of our experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health Radio or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening, and remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.